You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hello, this is Greg LeBlanc, and this is Unsiloed, and I'm here with Charles O'Reilly, who is a professor of strategy at Stanford, GSB, also the co-author with Michael Tushman of this book right here, Lead and Disrupt, a second edition of which will be out shortly, I believe. Welcome, Charles. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I think you start off your book with a key observation, which is that the average life expectancy of a company on the S&P 500 back in the day might have been 90 years, right? Maybe 60 years. And now the life expectancy of companies is considerably shorter. As the world changes more rapidly, this Darwinian process kicks in and companies are being extinguished at a fairly rapid clip. Now, other authors have written about this, Clay Christensen most notably. And I think the argument is that companies can't simultaneously be well-established companies with sustainable business models and at the same time be highly innovative. And I think you've been noted for making the claim that indeed it is possible to be both good at what you do and good at learning how to do new things. So tell us a little bit about the observation that you made. What drove you to start thinking about this notion of the ambidextrous organization? Was this something that you had believed all along or is this something that you discovered as you started to work with companies and do this kind of research? To go back to the kind of evolutionary biology comparison, which I think is actually quite useful in understanding organizations, we understand why we as humans get old and die. I mean, there's something called cell senescence. Our cells can only replicate accurately so many times. And when you reach a certain age, things start to go wrong. And, you know, you got a bad back and your hair falls out and other things. So from a biological standpoint, there is this notion of a lifespan. But that's not true with organizations. When an organization is successful, they have all the resources. They have brand, they have market power, they have intellectual property, they have human capital. And there's no reason, conceptually, theoretically, why an organization shouldn't be able to go from strength to strength. But of course, that's not the pattern we most often see, especially in an age of current age of digital disruption, where we're, as you point out, the average life expectancy of a company in the Standard Poor's 500 is somewhere down around 12 years. There was a consulting firm study done that suggests that between 2015 and 2025, half the companies in the Standard & Poor's 500 will go away. Now, that doesn't mean they'll all go bankrupt, but they'll slide into kind of irrelevance. They'll become smaller. Many of them will be acquired. They'll lose control of their destiny. And, And some, of course, will go bankrupt. So the larger issue is, why should that be? Why can't organizations go from strength to strength? And The answer is, of course, they can. We have lots of examples of that. One of the companies that we looked at in some detail is a company called GKN, which is a 260-year-old aerospace company. So you think about that for a minute. They start out as a coal mine in Wales. The Industrial Revolution occurs in Great Britain. You've got to have coal to do iron. They get into iron. Their skills in metallurgy allow them to move into automobile parts higher-end automobile parts. The aircraft industry develops. They leverage those skills to get into that. Aerospace develops. They take those skills plus some new skills and high-performance materials. They get into aerospace. 
So if you look, there are lots of examples of companies that have done that. So that was part of the motivation. And I guess the final thing I would say is, in my view, the role of a leader in an organization, especially the CEO, senior team, is to make sure that the company is successful today, but it's also successful in the future. So to paraphrase the old Goldman Sachs, they ought to be long-term greedy and they ought to be able to leverage assets and capabilities to move into new directions. I want to step back and just question the whole premise, right? I think a lot of us assume that it's a good thing for companies to last longer. If we use the Darwinian analogy, we as organisms, we certainly want to live longer rather than than shorter lives. Companies exist to serve people, not to serve themselves. And it seems like those countries where companies last longest are not necessarily the countries that have the best economies. Why do we, from a social welfare perspective, care about companies' longevity? Are they really the unit of analysis that we should be focused on? That's a fair question. And I think from a high level, an economic perspective, the argument is, as you suggested, that economies may be better off if the weak are weeded out and the strong persists. If you put yourself in the position of a leader, a CEO, your job is not to be Kurt Kerevorkian and help the company die. Your your job, I hope, is to understand what the assets and capabilities are that, that might be useful and profitable in new businesses. I guess 2009, General Motors almost went bankrupt. And if you think about if that company had gone bankrupt, think about the carnage. It's not just the hundred plus thousand people that would lose their jobs. It'd be all the associated industries and the like. So I think from a leader's perspective, if you put yourself in the position of somebody who's responsible for the company and not just the shareholders, but the employees and your other, then your job is to make sure that you can leverage your assets and capabilities to continue to be successful. You and I both live here in Silicon Valley, and so we're surrounded by startups. We have students who are founding companies and the like. But my view has always been that big companies ought to be more innovative than small companies. They have more experience. They have more often deeper technology. They have more access to customers. They can simply run more experiments. An entrepreneur runs one experiment. If he or she is lucky, they pivot, and then maybe they get to run a second experiment. Big companies can run, you know, multiple experiments. Now, I think in the book, you make the distinction between the kind of ordinary innovation that's necessary for a company to continue to do what it does well and these discontinuous innovations that involve dramatic shifts in, in the business architecture and the business model and so forth. Do you think that the capacity to innovate in one way is positively correlated, negatively correlated, or, or not correlated at all? Mary Benner and Mike Tushman did a study a number of years ago, an empirical study that showed that companies that get better and better at incremental innovation actually get worse and worse at doing sort of disruptive or discontinuous innovation. Jim March wrote a seminal paper in 1991 where he makes the difference between explore and exploit. Exploit is getting better and better at what you know how to do. There's a technological or market trajectory that you're getting better at. And so when Boeing brings out the 7X7, it's risky, it's technically sophisticated, but it's fundamentally incremental in that they're leveraging existing technologies to, to go to the next level. That's different from a discontinuous innovation, which requires maybe a new business model or a different set of capabilities. 
And it's the ability to do both, to explore and exploit. And what March pointed out was that the better you get at exploitation, the higher the likely returns from some incremental advance. So there's kind of a trap there where in the short term, just in terms of short-term profit, as a company, we're probably better off investing in getting better and better at what we already know how to do. But in the face of change, that's, of course, that's the kiss of death. And so the ability to do both, exploit and explore simultaneously, is essentially what we mean by ambidexterity. And that, I think, is what's necessary in the face of change. So is there necessarily a trade-off then? If you are going to be good at exploring, do you have to necessarily compromise on your ability to exploit? Is there some Pareto, is there a Pareto frontier on which if you want to go in one axis, you've got to give up something on the other axis? Exploration is fundamentally inefficient, right? Because you're going to take resources to run experiments that are going to fail. You could argue that, gee, if you took those resources and put them into what you already know how to do and the customers like, you could make more profit in the short term by doing that. So there is a fundamental inefficiency, I think, in that. The question is, what's the alternative? If you're in a business that's under threat of disruption and you don't run those experiments, then essentially you're setting yourself up for a long-term decline. In the book, you talk a lot about examples of companies that have half-heartedly tried to implement some kind of policy of exploration, and those experiments were more or less shut down by the immune system of the organization. Is that immune system primarily cultural? Is it architectural? So it's all of the above, right? There's a paradox, what we call the success syndrome, where alignment, fit, getting the right people, the right structure, the right metrics, the right culture, that organizational alignment is typically associated with successful execution of a strategy. That alignment leads to success. But when a company is successful, a couple of things happen. One, they get bigger. And when they get bigger, we put in systems and processes and procedures, not because we like bureaucracy, but because literally it makes us more efficient. We drive costs down, we get closer to customers. So that drives structural inertia, gets harder and harder to change. Separate from size, when a company is successful, they live longer. And when they live longer, we develop cultures, that is, these social control systems in organizations about how you have to behave to fit in and be accepted. And that leads to cultural inertia. And then there's the inertia that comes from the way leaders see the world, the kind of mindset. So those three sources of inertia make it often very difficult to change, especially when there are short-term financial pressures on a company to deliver. About three years ago, I was in a meeting, which if I had not been in the meeting, I wouldn't have believed it. The CEO and several of his senior managers, this was a company that was under threat of disruption. It was pretty clear that over the next 10 years, that there would be a new way of doing their business. And the issue on the table was, should they take assets and capabilities and devote them to this new business model, which was a lower margin business model that would cannibalize some of their existing businesses? And the CEO said directly, he said, look, I've got three years left in the job. He said, my compensation is basically contingent on stock price. You're suggesting that I take assets and capabilities away from a profitable business, invest them in a less profitable business. And he said, I'm not going to do it, which is fine. He's going to end up on one of my list of failed firms. 
And he did what was in his short-term interest. It didn't help the company. They're going to lose before they're done. They'll, they'll probably lay off 50,000 people. In that case, it seems as if the true principals, right, the folks who are investing in the company, the shareholders, Wall Street, the analysts, whoever it is that's dictating stock price, they seem to be blind to the missed opportunity as well. I think with Netflix, and you described the process of how Netflix transitioned away from DVD by mail to streaming, as we remember, the price of Netflix stock crashed pretty seriously after the announcement, only to become the highest performing stock of the last 10 years. So what is it about the investors that they fail to understand? I'm out of my league here, and you and some of your other guests, I'm sure, will have a contrary opinion. But let's be clear who the shareholders are. You might know, what's the holding of an average share of stock in the Fortune 500? First of all, who are the investors and how long do they hold that stock? The last I checked, which was a while ago, they're holding it for less than six months. And some very large proportion of their shares are held by institutional investors. So what do the institutional investors want? They want short-term gains. So they're perfectly happy to go in and out of stocks quickly. That does not help companies survive. It's not a good thing. Now, some CEOs are able to manage that kind of tension. If you look at a number of, I think, four or five years ago, Shantanu Narayan at Adobe realized that they had to go from selling shrink wrap software to a subscription model. But that in the short term, the medium term, that had a significant impact on their revenues. And he was able to present a story to analysts, convince them that there were metrics that they should be paying attention to, and make that transition without the stock price crashing. Watching stocks go up and down, I think if that's what CEOs are doing, then I think they're short-term focused and they're going to lose to competitors who are longer term or new competitors. Well, how do you explain the behavior maybe of the people a little bit further down in the organization? I mean, I understand they're concerned about their pay packages. I understand they're concerned about their power bases and so forth. When you're fighting for the aisle seat on the sinking ship, at some point you have to realize that this is really not a fight worth fighting if you plan on having a career in these organizations. So what do they do? They go set up new companies. They leave, right? In many instances in our neighborhood, that's, that's what many of them do. I think one of the big lessons of economics for all of us is the power of incentives. And I've spent too many years in too many organizations where you have mid-level leaders who understand, and even frontline leaders who understand completely what's happening to them. But the incentives are very powerful. It really is a leadership story. It's not a technology story. This notion of ambidexterity, we've just seen too many organizations that have cratered that had the technology. And unless you have a senior leader who can articulate a strategy and a rationale for why they need to to be a little less efficient and a little more long term, then it's very difficult to do. Ostensibly, you know, the old distinction between leadership and management. Leadership is about the long term. It's about change. Management is about making sure that everything is running the way it should be. Leaders are paid to worry about the long term, not the short term. That's personal opinion. So let's talk a bit about how a leader can do this, because if a leader stands up and says, hey, everything we've been doing, everything that we're good at, every investment that you've made as an employee in this organization, we're going to toss it. 
we're going to try and put it behind us. We're going to flush it down the toilet and, and go with the new shiny stuff. That's not what a successful right. leader would say, Greg. That's not going to work. A successful leader would say, we have built a fabulous organization, and it's through your efforts that we have achieved what we have achieved. What we need to do is to venerate that, keep what's important, and also move into the future. So you don't want to stand up and say, by the way, all, all you people who were made us successful for the last 20 years is you're all a bunch of dinosaurs. That's not the message. Well, I'm interested in the different architectural options that you talk about in the book, right? Because there's a bunch of different ways when ideas bubble up within the organization. And I also love the, the variation selection and retention metaphor that you use. And we can talk certainly about that, like where you get the ideas. Organizations I've worked with, what I see is idea constipation, right? Everyone's got an idea, but the ideas don't, they don't go anywhere. They just get stuck in committee and never get evaluated even to see if they're a good idea. I'm certainly old enough. You may not be, but remember Nolan Bushnell? Nolan Bushnell was the founder of Atari, one of the iconic figures in Silicon Valley. Actually, he hired Wozniak and Jobs initially. Bushnell said, anybody who's had a shower has had a good idea. So there are really three things that have to happen, and that is ideation, incubation, and scaling. And these are three disciplines. There has to be a disciplined process to come up with new ideas, or you're right, you won't generate ideas. So this is design thinking, it's corporate venture capital, it's hackathons, it's open innovation. There are rigorous methodologies for generating new ideas. And you need a process to do that. And lots of companies have gotten pretty good at that nowadays. And one of the ways companies often try to do that is they open up an outpost here in Silicon Valley, or they hire a bunch of new people and think about it. So nothing wrong with that by itself. But that does not at all suggest that you're going to identify ideas that are valuable for the long term, that can be profitable, that can be scalable. So the second discipline is incubation. And again, we have some terrific processes to do that. Lean Startup, Business Model Canvas, Launchpad. You know, there are a bunch of ways of doing that. And again, some companies have gotten pretty good at that. They've invested significantly in Lean Startup methodology. Lean Startup, just to be clear, it takes an idea, hypothesis, and then it has a process to rapidly iterate and learn whether that idea is going to work or not. So that's the second process. The third process, which is where often these efforts go awry, is the notion of scaling. Do you have a disciplined process to get the assets and capabilities needed for a a reasonable idea to scale that idea. And by assets and capabilities, it's not just money, it's people, it's access to customers, it's manufacturing technology. Do you have a rigorous process? And in my experience in the last three or four years, what many companies have done is they've gotten the ideation part and the incubation part, and they have failed completely at the scaling part. I was in Japan a couple of years ago. There was a big Japanese company whose name you would recognize that had spent three or four years and a lot of money on the ideation part, design thinking, open innovation. And they were very proud. They said, you know, we have developed 400 potential ideas for new businesses. And I said, that's wonderful. I said, how many of those have you actually made any money off of? Two. The point is that they had gotten very good at ideation. They actually were not very good at incubation. And they fail completely at scaling. 
Yeah, we have a process outside of the corporate structure that does a really good job of step two and three and encourages step one, which is the venture capital world. Venture capital does an amazing job of evaluating ideas and and scaling them. And so if, if they're doing such a great job, why do we need the corporations to do it, number one? And then secondly, why do we have to have all of this happen within some integrated entity? Why can't we vertically disintegrate the process? You would know this better than I, but is venture capital actually that good? What I've heard from friends in the business, there are three or four firms, venture capital firms, that are making a lot of money, and there are a ton of them that are making no money or losing money. So I think venture capital is terrific for businesses that don't require deep technology. I'm not so sure venture capital is so good for technologies that take a very long time to develop. So I I think venture capital is fine, but there's no reason why a company can't do that. Many companies are have lots of uh, financial resources, and these are not necessarily very expensive propositions. And this company is now doing what a venture capital company would do. They're allocating relatively small amounts of money, maybe kind of the seed round and then a million or five million for the A round. They can do that. Why do they have to rely on a bunch of venture capitalists? There are scenarios where, for instance, the uh oil exploration part is separate from the oil refining and marketing part. You've got wildcatters who are out there doing the discovery part. And then once they've found the oil, they just sell it to an integrated oil company that can you know, manage the, the refining and the marketing and the distribution. Maybe existing companies can snap up these opportunities once they've been demonstrated to be somewhat successful. Yeah. That's the medical device industry. Lots of medical device companies never or in some cases, some pharmaceutical firms, they have no interest in developing a sales force and doing all the, the compliance sort of stuff. And so there are industries where they basically outsource their R&D. That works fine. Talk a little bit about IBM. You worked with IBM during a very important time in its history when it had to undergo a grueling transition. At the time, it went from being a company that was in the doldrums to becoming a company that that is certainly successful by many metrics by the end of that transition. Could you talk a little bit, what was the secret to the success and why was it able to make the transition? In 1993, IBM was failing and Wall Street wanted it broken up, sold off in pieces. And they brought in Lou Gerstner, the first outsider CEO in IBM's history. And Gerstner decided that what customers wanted were integrated solutions. They didn't want piece parts. And so he kept the company together. And by 2000, when we arrived, IBM was doing, had been saved, basically. But Gerstner, in 2000, got angry. IBM had an annual strategy planning process called the Spring Plan. And He'd taken a bunch of strategic plans home over the weekend to read, and he came back in on Monday morning, and he was angry. And he called his head of strategy, a fellow named Bruce Harold, in, and he threw these plans across the desk, and he said, this is crap. He said, you call this strategy? And he was angry because they were under margin pressure, and all the strategic plans were cutting back on investment in the future. And he said, I am tired of missing markets and opportunities. And he told Harold, he said, I want you to do a study. I want you to identify all the technologies that we, the IBM company, had developed that we failed to make any money on. We failed to commercialize. And Bruce's organization did that. And they identified 29 separate technologies that IBM had developed, including some AI routers, for instance, the first commercial 
router was not a Cisco product, it was an IBM product. And they did an analysis about why they missed these markets. And they came up with two big reasons. The first reason was that they were so focused on today's business, so maniacal about it, all their mind share, all their metrics, everything was focused on today's business. So they lacked insight. They had no systematic way of looking into the future. And be clear, R&D produces technologies and sometimes products. It does not produce new businesses. So they had R&D, but the R&D was producing these technologies, but they had no insight into what the, the business opportunities were. And the second reason they failed was that they had great managers who knew how to run these big exploit organizations, but they didn't know how to run these more entrepreneurial uh, businesses. So we, with, along with Bruce Harrell, what we did over the next seven years is we developed a new way of thinking about strategy that has the strategy component, which they have their own take on it, but looks pretty standard. And then they have execution. And the way they decided to run was if you as a business owner, we're responsible for strategy. You had to be explicit about how you were gonna align the organization to execute the strategy, which is missing in most strategy formulation processes. And they set that process up and they funded initially four or five. At one point they had as many as 20 different opportunities. These were opportunities that leveraged the assets of the corporation, were compatible with the larger IBM strategy, that had the potential for generating billion-dollar businesses over a five to seven-year period that could not be commoditized. They then fund these businesses and scale them. So that was the process. That process, we tracked that process up through 2006. Between 2000 and 2006, they generated $15 billion in top-line growth from these. They generated more from this organic process than they did from acquisitions. So where do these internal entrepreneurs come from? It's not like the company receives, although there are companies that do this, that will solicit pitches from outsiders who want to work within the ecosystem of the company. But internally, where do these pitches come from? Because there are people within the organization who know where the potential opportunities are, but their skill set, which is to run large business units and have lots of direct reports and supervise budgets, are those people necessarily suited to run these little startup shops inside the big company? No. And initially, they'd failed at a couple of these businesses precisely for that reason. But here's the paradox. What they initially did was they said, look, we don't have people who can run these businesses. And so they went out and they brought in some proven entrepreneurial CEO types. And guess what happened? They failed. They didn't fail because they weren't good leaders. They failed because they had no networks. They had no credibility within the larger organization. They didn't understand how the company operated. And so what IBM then did was they set up a process to train entrepreneurial leaders and they would take high potential leaders who had great credibility in networks. They would teach them, just as you or I might teach a course in entrepreneurship, there are a set of building blocks that you can help people understand. They set up a training program and they taught these leaders how to think more and run a more entrepreneurial opportunity and simultaneously leverage their credibility and networks through the larger corporation. Then they were successful. So I think you're absolutely right that the typical leader of a big exploit organization does not necessarily have the skills to run 
an entrepreneurial organization. We have just written an interesting case on Intel. Intel has what they call the EGI, the Entrepreneurial Growth Initiative business. They've taken a bunch of their entrepreneurial ventures. It is run by a guy named Saji Ben Moshi. Saji is an Israeli engineer who went to work for IBM, was frustrated, left, founded a couple companies. His last company was purchased by Intel. And so here is a leader who understands Intel, who also is an entrepreneurial leader, who has great credibility in the company because he's a great engineer. So there are ways to work around this. The point is that if you bring external leaders in, they don't have the networks. And if you're running an exploit business and I'm brought in to run a new explore business and you don't know me and I come to you and I say, Greg, I really need your help. What's going through your head, you probably wouldn't say this to me, is why should I help this guy? He's going to do stuff that is taking resources from me. I, I'm not going to help him. That's the balance. Yeah, there's a lot of great case studies in the book. One that, that I liked was the SAP story. We think of them as a dynamic software company, but every software company becomes a, a legacy company, right, at some point. Tell us that story real quickly. So in uh, 2006, the co-CEO of SAP was a fellow named Henning Kagerman, and they had a strategic study done. And what they realized, what the study suggested was that over the next decade, there was no growth in their big, their main market, the ERP market. These are these big 20, 30 million dollar, highly integrated enterprise resource planning systems. There was no growth. And so they did what strategically made perfect sense. So they said, well, let's take some of our assets and capabilities and let's move into a growth market. And the growth market was the small and medium-sized business. And they had a product called Business by Design that was targeted at that market. And they believed that they would generate about a billion dollars in revenue over the next three or four years by getting into that market, selling software as a service. And to run this, they at the time, I don't know where they are today, but at the time they were a big functional organization. So engineering, marketing, sales. And they tried to run this with a heavyweight cross-functional team deep in the organization, drawing on the assets across the, the various functions. And they were completely frustrated, the, the team that was running this, because they couldn't get the cooperation of other people, that they weren't high priority. And ultimately, they failed. And indeed, Leo Apotecker, who was their then co-CEO in 2009, I guess it was, was fired by Plattner in part for his failure to implement this business by design strategy. Was it the right strategy? Absolutely. And so what they did was they went out and they bought success factors for three billion bucks, and then they spent another eight billion bucks to buy Concur Technologies. And today they're in that market. It cost them $11 billion, plus they lost another billion dollars in a couple of years internally because they didn't organize it right. It was a story not of strategy, but of execution and the inability of them to execute because they didn't set it up as a separate entity. You told a story, and I forget which company it was, where $10 million was allocated towards some innovative initiative. And of course, all, all the people who were in the existing business saw that. And they all grabbed their piece of gold and there's nothing left That's for right. innovation. That was Hewlett Packard, actually. That was Hewlett Packard. So here's the lesson. The lesson is, if you're going to run these businesses, if you want them to scale to large businesses, especially if they're using a different business model 
and they may cannibalize the existing business. They have to have senior management support, very high level support, because otherwise what will happen is that everybody's priorities and incentives are not to help these new businesses. So what happened at HP was they had a division that had a very promising new technology and senior management said, gee, that's a great technology. Here's 10 million bucks. And they put it into the higher level organization. And by the time it got down to where it should have been, everybody had sucked off their piece of it. So they never got the resources. The lesson is, if you're going to run these businesses, you've got to have high level support and monitoring to make sure that they do get the assets and capabilities. Well, that story reminded me of some of the contributions that are made to uh, universities made by forward-looking donors. I'd love to talk a bit about where you see universities. Universities are, it would be hard to say that they're necessarily really good at exploiting. They're a little too chaotic, but a lot of people would argue they're not good at exploring and that potentially the higher education is being disrupted and the universities may be left behind. But the universities have so many resources and they have such important capabilities and very important brands that they have a lot of ammunition that they can use to fight these new upstarts. Do you see universities fundamentally failing to engage in the kind of exploration that they need to engage in to stay ahead of technological disruption? I mean, both of us are at universities. Maybe it's easier yeah. to see things from the outside, but I think when you're on the inside, you, you see things maybe the outsiders don't see. So we have been one of these industries that since the 14th century has been doing the same thing, where somebody walks into a classroom and ostensibly spouts wisdom and the students somehow assimilate it. And I think you're right that there are potential threats to universities. I think the current pandemic has actually accelerated our ability to explore some of these new modalities for teaching. If a dean comes to me and says, you know, O'Reilly, I want you to teach differently. I want you to flip the classroom. It's like, I've been doing this for 35 years. What are you talking about? I know what I'm doing. So I think it's hard for universities, but I think we do explore in the sense that we do a lot of research and we generate new ways of doing things. And I think the pandemic has accelerated our willingness to try to explore different ways of providing education, not just for undergraduates and graduate students, but for executives and for lifelong learners. So it's clearly affecting some colleges and universities are under real threat. I think some of the bigger universities, because of brand and because of alumni loyalty, I think we have the capacity to change. I don't know. What do you think? I think the top universities definitely have more resources and more loyalty, but they may also suffer from what I think of as the uh, the curse of the top 10, right? The more successful you are, the more potentially resistant you might be because you don't want to tinker with the good thing if you drop out of the ratings because you made some experiments that failed. Let me say one thing, which I, I'm sure mirrors your experience with, since you've been on both sides, you've been in real organizations and you've been in, in academia. Academia is not like any real organization. <laughs> Basically, we're a bunch of subcontractors. Every real organization lives and dies by interdependence. They produce something that an individual couldn't, and they do that because people coordinate with each other. That is not true with universities. Universities, people come, they teach, they can teach their own courses, they can do their own research. 
they can have a perfectly successful career and never be interdependent with anybody. So I don't think universities are an example of what real organizations do. Yeah, I think certainly on the research side, it's very different. I think on the teaching side, there's going to be bigger changes afoot, particularly the move from product to service, where instead of coming in and getting your two-year degree, you're going to be getting a lifetime relationship. And you already do get a lifetime relationship, but that's sort of seen as a byproduct more than the main part of the whole process. So I think that the degree part will probably be rendered less important and the lifelong learning will become more important. Before we end it, I, I wanted to touch on your more recent work related to leadership. In particular, you've been looking at narcissistic leaders. And leadership is a huge part of this story. In fact, yes. it's probably the most important part of the story and how you need leaders that are capable of transforming organizations and of simultaneously encouraging innovation and exploitation. But you also mentioned that some of the characteristics that make for success as transformational leadership are indistinguishable from the traits that we would normally refer to as narcissistic. To what extent are those traits necessarily harmful or can they be helpful? So if you ask most people who have experience with organizations and you say, give me a description of a great leader, of a transformational leader, they will say things like he or she has a vision. They are willing to challenge the status quo. They are often charming. They're persistent. They're willing to overcome obstacles. They may not suffer fools gladly. So we'll get a description of the prototypic leader. If you then go to the clinical literature and you say, what are the characteristics of a narcissist? They are grandiose. They are entitled. They are self-confident. They're risk-seeking. They are hostile when challenged. And those two profiles look very similar. And indeed, Many of the people that we or the press oftentimes holds up as charismatic or visionary leaders are indistinguishable and in many cases are, in fact, uh, narcissists. The problem is that a narcissist is completely self-confident, doesn't listen to experts, believes that they know better what the answer is, will not tolerate dissent, so they create cultures that are not team-oriented. Because they are entitled, they believe often that the rules don't really apply to them so that they are willing to violate, in some cases, ethical rules. And I think we see probably more than our fair share here in Silicon Valley. Because if you're a venture capitalist and you're trying to distinguish between funding two companies and one is headed by this charismatic, visionary, if you don't invest in this company, you're a bozo. And the other has got an introverted engineer, and you go for the grandiose person. Let me give you some names. The problem is, look at what happened with Theranos, with Elizabeth Holmes. Look at what happened with WeWork, with Adam Newman. Look at what happened with Uber, with Travis Kalanick. Look at what happened with the United States, with Donald Trump. I think arguably these people are, on the one hand, visionary leaders. On the other hand, they crashed and burned and put at risk their organization. So I think there's a fine line there. So what's the ultimate failure? Because, look, if you put a lion in a kindergarten, bad things happen, but it's not the lion's fault. <laughs> lions are lions. <laughs> Why is it that so many decision makers who are in a position to determine who is leading this organization, go and choose these folks. Because they're charming. 
in many instances, they lack a moral compass. They lack empathy. That allows them to be manipulative and not feel guilty about it. The problem is that doesn't mean they're stupid. They're often very good at figuring out what the other person wants and needs. Think about Steve Jobs with his reality distortion field. What, what does that mean? He lied. He stole from Wozniak. And we make a big hero out of him. It turns out he routinely stole other people's ideas. So I think your question was, why do we end up with these people? Because they're very good at flattering other people. And once they're in positions of power, they're very good at getting rid of the opposition. And so they are advantaged in these organizational tournaments. I really appreciate you joining me today. I want to remind everybody, when's the second edition coming out? a couple months. Okay, fantastic. So I don't know if we should run out and get this or wait a few months and and get the next edition. It ought to be like software. If you buy a first edition, you get the next edition. Exactly. Exactly. Then I'd have even more books in my house. But thank you so much, Charles. It was my pleasure, Greg. So thank you. I hope we'll uh, continue this conversation sometime. We'll see each other in person soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.